All right, y'all. <clears throat> Sorry if there's a delay there, but we are live and welcome to the Q&A. It's not Friday. It's Tuesday. This is a rare Tuesday Q&A. I'm Mike Winger. I'm here to try to help you learn how to think biblically about everything. This is a journey we're all on together. It's just those of us who think one of two questions that you're asking is, is um, for the, maybe the Christians in the audience, I want to understand what the Bible says about these different tough questions I've got. And they're being loaded into the live chat right now. I'm taking 20 questions today. I got the first one ready. And the rest come from the live chat. Um, so you just want to know what the Bible says about things, not just what a pastor says, not just what Mike thinks about it, but specifically what does scripture actually say to illuminate us on these issues. And then the other audience, you're maybe not a Christian, maybe you're not a believer, or maybe you're on the fence, or maybe you, you're, you don't know what to call yourself, but you still want to know. You're curious. Like what, what, what if I actually found a preacher, a pastor, a teacher, a person online, maybe who actually talked about what the Bible says about something and wasn't just trying to do a salesman thing on me with Christianity. And that's uh, my agenda here. You, you've come to the right place. And the first question today is from, um, Kang her, that's the name of the YouTube user who says in the Trinity, do the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all have three separate wills? Do they have three separate wills? And that's a very interesting question. I can partially answer it because I there are things I don't know about this issue, about the, about the doctrine of the Trinity. But I, before I give you some specific scripture that I think gives us a strong response to this, a, a, a yes answer, a yes to a degree, but then it leaves it leaves some questions to be unanswered that at least for me to leave unanswered. Uh, I want to talk about some mistakes you can make about the doctrine of the Trinity. These are major mistakes. These are huge mistakes. And I know a skeptic's going to hear me say this and they're going to have an objection to it. I'll respond to that objection in a moment. So here's some major mistakes I think it would be wise to avoid. Um, the Trinity is not something or the, the, let me say this, the nature of God Maybe I could put it that way. It'll, it'll make what I'm saying even more clear to you, naturally clear to you. The nature of God is such that you do not just figure it out. There's another aspect of it. You can try to figure it out. You know, like Romans 1, it tells us that, that God's very nature has been revealed to us through creation. You know, the fact that he made this tells us something about the one who made this stuff. He's intelligent. He's moral. He's um, creative. He's relational. I think that creation shows us God's relational, right? Because relationships are such a central aspect of creation. That being said, you can only go so far with just looking around and trying to figure out about God. If you want to know more about God, revelation, right? Not, not figuring it out, but learning about it is, is actually the better way to learn who God is in more detail. It's interesting. For example, if you want to know about me, you could look at my life, you could follow me around, but there are things about me that you would only know if I told you. If I don't verbally express them to you, you would never ever know them. That is, revelation is telling you this about me, not your observations about my life. The, the, the nature of God is like this. We can learn certain things about God through creation itself. But when you're talking about like God's sort of internal workings, for lack of a better word, revelation is the way to go. I want to learn about God from what he says about himself. It's revelation, not investigation. That's the, that's the first point. Major mistake is that some people think I will not accept things, things about God, except if they come through my own investigation, not the revelation of scripture. This causes them to have a problem where God can, let's say God came down and he says, Hey, I'm going to tell you about myself. This is what I'm like. They could actually say to him, nah, I don't believe that. I'm going to see if I can figure that out on my own through some sort of, you know, outside 
experiment I'm going to take, some some investigative path I'll I'll travel. So the role of philosophy, then, uh, in my understanding, when it comes to the nature of God, philosophy comes underneath, not over, over uh, revelation. It comes under revelation, not over it. So philosophy has a, has an important place, but it comes under scripture. Scripture being one of the major sources, the major source of God's revelation of himself to us, where he tells us who he is. So this means that philosophical investigation, maybe I could give you an illustration so this makes uh, real sense to everybody. You know those old games, Connect the Dots. Okay, I don't know why I think about Connect the Dots a lot, but I do. So in Connect the Dots, you've got the dots on the page, and then you're trying to draw the lines, and you're not given the lines, but as long as you stay within the dots and you connect them in the right order, you can you can draw the lines in a way that shows you the full picture and you can see what the dots were telling you all along. Philosophy comes in and it's sort of connecting the dots. Scripture gives you the dots. Scripture gives you the actual dots themselves. Here's the dots. Don't violate these. Don't go beyond these. Don't leave these out. These are facts about God. God is a father. God is son. God is Holy Spirit. There are some dots on our page. The father is not the son. The son is, is not the Holy Spirit. Their identities have a differentiation that we need to keep there. So there's dots that are on the page. The Father sends the Son. The Son sends the Spirit. Okay, there's some dots on our page. Um, the Father sends the Son to die for us. The Son dies on the cross for us. The Holy Spirit regenerates and indwells us. There's some dots on our page. But they're all called God. There's some dots on our page. Philosophy then comes and goes, how does that work? How does three and one function? How, how, how can you explain in what sense is God three and what sense is God one? As long as you're staying in the dots that scripture gives you, you're doing safe biblical philosophy. When you stray from that, and when you say, well, I, I think I'm going to rearrange the dots because my philosophy tells me it should be this way. Now you're, you're, re you're rejecting revelation for the sake of your investigation. You're thinking, I've got a better understanding of God than what God has told me about himself. Um, that's me putting it simplistically, but I think it's really important. Now, some can push back on this and they can go, Mike, that is a philosophy. What you're describing is a philosophy for how you understand scripture. So philosophy is over scripture, isn't it? Well, it is a philosophy. You're right. You're right. But the philosophy is that scripture has a higher priority than my own investigation beyond the revelation of scripture. And that philosophy itself is grounded in scripture. So it's supported with the word of God. Lean not on your own understanding. Trust the Lord with all your heart. Um, God's own revelation is, you know, talking about, uh, the dangers of straying from the things that he has revealed to us. And he has said to us, he's told us. So this is, this is a philosophy I'm getting from scripture as well. However, this would mean that getting the Trinity, here, here's an application of this for anybody who struggles with the doctrine of the Trinity. Cause I know people who've said, I'm going to hold off believing in the three in one nature of God until I figure it out in my head. And I think this is an unnecessary step, okay? It's important, it's desirable, but it's not required, right? It's desired to understand it, but it's not required to understand it. So getting the Trinity is secondary to knowing the fact that the Trinity or that that this is God's nature. Maybe you you have a, you struggle with the term Trinity. A lot of people don't understand the doctrine of the Trinity. So how about I put, this, put it this way? Getting that God is three in one, that he's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, yet there's one God, and the Father's not the Son, the Son's not the Spirit. Those simple facts, that's clearly taught in Scripture. Getting it, trying to figure out how to, how to connect the dots philosophically is not required. It's desired. I want to do it. I'm going to keep pursuing that always, but it's not necessary to believe it. 
Let me give you an example. I know electricity powers my house. Do I get how electricity powers my house? No, I don't really understand electricity very well. I'm thoroughly confused about what electricity even is. Like when I really, and I think, oh, it's the, it's the zappy stuff, the power thing. Yeah, but I don't know what it is. I don't know what it is. I know what it does. I don't know what it is. Okay, I know electricity powers my house. I don't get it. I don't understand it. I know I have a spirit. I don't understand what that spirit is or the very core nature or how to differentiate between soul and spirit. I don't understand that stuff personally, but I know that I have a spirit. See, I can know things without getting them fully. I know how I know that gravity works, okay, and that it that it holds our planet together and it glues me to the surface of the planet. I know it's very important. I know that, you know, it's either objects attract each other or 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 is it space that repels them? I don't even know. Like this is all over my head. But I know that it's a thing. Gravity's a thing. It's a real thing. It really does its thing. And we can base science and stuff on it, right? But I don't understand how that works. Like if someone goes, Okay, you believe in gravity, Mike? Well explain it to me. I'll be like, uh, what goes up must come down, you know, depending on where you're at. <laughs> um, you know, objects seem like they kind of draw each other together, but it's not magnetism. You know, like I could say those things, but I don't really understand gravity. But nobody would scoff at me and say, Mike, then you should reject gravity until you fully understand it. Yet there's lots of people who reject the teaching of scripture on the nature of God, the Trinity, because they don't fully understand it. I'm just saying... You're falling into a weird trap here where you think you have to fully understand something. I mean, you're watching me right now through an internet service that you don't understand, most likely, <laughs> right? I'm, I'm being recorded on a camera that's sending signals through the, the cloud, whatever this is, right? And you're, you're believing all these things are here because you have good reason to, but you don't fully understand it, right? I know Jesus is God. I know the Holy Spirit is God. I know the Father is God. But I also know that there's only one God, right? And the Father's not the Son. The Son's not the Spirit. So... I understand that much. I, I know I know that much. Fully understanding it, not necessary. Even though I'm not stopping investigation, I'm just not allowing the ongoing search for a deeper understanding to stop me from knowing what I know. Okay, so you could object. But Mike, here my inner skeptic will speak out now. But Mike, you're denying reason and promoting blind faith. You're denying reason and promoting blind faith. Um... No, I, I tried to give examples of several things where we do this all the time. There's things we understand somewhat. We understand that they're true, even though we don't quite understand how they work. This is the case with the doctrine of who God is that we see revealed in scripture. Trusting God is not a blind faith or negative thing. Trusting God is quite a positive thing. When you trust God, when you believe God, this is a reasonable thing. And let me put it, put it to you this way. My counter would be, if hypothetically for the skeptic, with us, if hypothetically here, which I believe is fully true, God has, you know, revealed the truth that we find in scripture in the Bible. Then what we have in the Bible is a choice between, do I believe what God has said, or do I lean on my own understanding in this negative fashion? I think at that point, the irrational thing is to not trust what God has revealed. It's in my view, and if you're a skeptic, please try to pick up on this and understand where I'm coming from. It would be highly irrational not to believe the God who created all things. It would be incredibly irrational to think, you know, God, you're telling me who you are, but I simply don't believe that because I can't figure out how that works. That is a very weird perspective to have. Like I'm, this is where Proverbs, it says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And that word fear means more to them than it does in our modern English when we say fear. 
Um, but it really means like that respect and that reverence for God and that even that awareness that he's the judge too. So there's a, a, a kind of scary fear that can be there if you're being evil and he's good and he's a judge. But there's, there's more to it than that. It's this idea that God is God and I'm, who am I? You know, if, if I walked into the office of some amazing physicist and he tells me, well, Mike, atoms aren't what you think they are. They're this other thing over here. I would probably just be like, oh, and just believe the guy. Right? Unless I had a reason not to. I mean, how much more with God? I wouldn't think I know better than you about your own nature. And you could you could counter by saying, but what if God's actually evil and he's a liar and, he, and this is the real God that exists is this evil liar God. And I just want to say, slow down, skeptic, and consider how crazy you sound. <laughs> the grounding of all reality, the maker of all things, instead of believing him, I will postulate that he's actually a horrible liar. And he's like Loki. He's the trickster. Um, this is dangerous and silly. And this is why the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And it is the beginning of folly to not have that perspective. Trusting God is reasonable. It's the rational, philosophically right thing to do, to believe and trust God at all times. Not trusting God and acting like you can think better than him, than he does, is silly. It's like a four-year-old arguing with an adult. No, you're wrong, and I'm right. I understand things you don't, and that it's, it's silly. Okay, so the question, in the Trinity, do the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all have three separate wills? Let me just share with you a few scriptures on this that give us some dots in the text of scripture. Um, and you can use these to try to be boundaries on what you, basically something you must affirm and should not reject as you're believing what God has revealed about himself. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, right before the cross, he's battling with this incredible angst, incredible angst, like unspeakable agony as he's anticipating the rebellion, uh, or I should say betrayal of those who are following him, Peter denying him, Judas actually literally betraying him into the hands of those who will murder him, his own people who he loves rejecting him, um, the Pharisees, the people who he has leading his people, ra rallying a rebellion against him, the Romans uh, torturing and crucifying and killing him, the shame of all of our sins being upon him on the cross. I can't even imagine not just the physical suffering, but the, the shame that Jesus experienced on the cross. Um, those of you who felt shame at some point in your life where you, you have a specific memory, like, oh, I felt so much shame. Not just embarrassment, but actual shame. Um, I can't imagine what uh, what Christ went through as the, the weight of all of our sin and all of our rebellion against God was carried by him. So he's praying in the garden right before this moment of the cross. In a sense, Jesus doesn't want to go. How do I know that? It says it here in scripture. I would not have written it this way, right? If I was writing, rewriting the Bible in my own imagination, I would have not included this idea. Um, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. That refers to the suffering he'll experience. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. So Jesus here shows that there's a difference between his will and the Father's will. So whatever you affirm about the Trinity, we should be affirming there's some difference between the Son and the Father in their will. I, now, I'm being careful with my words here. I say some difference, not complete difference, where we say completely separate wills. I don't really know what you mean by completely separate wills. And I would be, I would personally say, here's a dot. I don't know how to connect. I don't know where the philosophical line is. I'm not entirely sure what I mean by will. When I say will, I kind of know what I mean. I kind of know what you mean. But I think most of us humans were like, we're not really sure what we mean when we say will. We mean desire, intent. 
once kind of like that but but how much does will affect uh, overlap into personhood or personality or an identity and i don't i don't know the answer to those questions but jesus says if you're willing remove this cup but not my will but yours be done so on some level there's there are uh, there are differences in the wills of the father and the son here um mark 14 36 gives us another scripture abba father all things are possible for you same account same different account same event remove this cup from me yet not what i will but what you will jesus speaking to the father and then matthew 26 39 has another example of this going a little further he fell on his face and prayed saying my father if it is possible let this cup pass from me nevertheless not as i will but as you will a few caveats now clearly differences in will um, does that mean entirely separate wills? Um, well, no, because you've got to think of these things in layers, I think, right? Jesus is obviously willing to go to the cross, willing to go to the cross, because he he. it's very clear in Scripture, there's a lot of verses that actually reaffirm this. Jesus went voluntarily to the cross. What he's doing here while he's saying, I don't want to go to the cross, there's another aspect of his will that's like, I want to do this anyways. I, I desire to go to the cross, and I don't want to go to the cross. There's a conflicting set of desires here. You've experienced this before, you know, some of you guys on Sunday morning, you're going to wake up and you're going to think, I want to go to church and I don't want to go to church. <laughs> you have more than one desire competing, you know, and Jesus, because of the incarnation, perhaps he's the one who's actually on the earth, walking around, breathing, going to be suffering the physical, emotional, um, spiritual pain that's going to be coming. There's a, there's a side of this where he says, yeah, I don't want to go to the cross. But there's another side of him that he says, when when Peter says to him, oh, you won't go to the cross, he says, get behind me, Satan. Right? So this is this is why he came. He he has he says the Son of Man must be crucified. He knows it has to happen. He's expressing his battle. He's not showing that he's one-sidedly opposed to the cross, whereas the Father is one-sidedly for the cross. There's a conflict here that is even internal within Jesus. He's being tempted yet he's overcoming and choosing to go to the cross. Um, so it's not as though we have like these entirely entire separation of desires where the father wants something that someone's the opposite. It's more layered than that. Okay. Based on scripture here, I'm giving you lots of verses and ideas from the Bible here. So Jesus, it seems in, in the Bible, by virtue of maybe the incarnation, at least, at least that's an aspect of it, is in a situation the father is not in, right? He's in the garden. He's about to face torture, betrayal, shame, and death. Um, is he at odds with the father? I mean, like, as in there, could there be a disagreement in the Trinity here? No, clearly not. Right. He, he's like, look, I have a desire to not go to the cross. That's understandable. There, that's connected to the concept of will somehow in ways I don't fully understand. Yet, is that a conflict in, in, in the Trinity? Is the father and are the father and son conflicting here? No, they're not conflicting. The son's totally submitting and he came with this purpose, but he has an understandable desire that's different in some ways than the father's at that moment. In some ways, it'll be the same. Because he's ultimately saying, not my will, but yours be done. So the not my will be done, but yours, that shows a there's a deeper layer of unification between the father and son, um, while there's an understandable desire not to suffer this horrible, horrible fate. So Jesus shares many desires with the father. Here's my conclusion, right? But has a particular dread of the suffering of the cross that is couched in the language of, of a will that is not the same as the father's. Um on some level and i keep qualifying on some level because i i'm not trying to say there's like this hard line between the son's will and the father's will and they're these completely separate things I, i'm not saying that 
I'm saying on some level, there's a difference. So this fits within a Trinitarian understanding, but, but, and this is important, when we get the dots of the doctrine of the Trinity, it breaks what's called modalism. Now, modalism was mo what most people think the Trinity actually is. As soon as you ask them about, about, um, about the doctrine of the Trinity, a lot of people within a couple minutes become modalists without even trying to, and it's a, and it's a big mistake. It's, it's, a, it's against scripture. They'll think that the father simply becomes the son. So God, he operates as a father sometimes. And then it's almost like, you know, you wear different hats in life, right? Like uh, to my son, I'm a father. To my to my mother, I'm a son. To my coworker, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a coworker. Um, and so I'm wearing different hats in life or something. And, and this is... Um, this is a, a false understanding of the Trinity because here, this, this passage, I'll put it back on your screen, it shows us that there's a difference between the will of the Son and the will of the Father in this moment. Not complete different wills. I'm not saying that because I don't know that Scripture gives us that, right? We're not, we're not trying to create new dots. We're just trying to s stick with the ones we're given. Um, but this isn't really possible on modalism because on modalism it would be it would be this idea that God's in the different modes. I'm in the Father mode. I'm in the Son mode, and now He's miming to Himself, Father. Not and then He says, "Not Your will be done, but My will be done." So it's a guy with a dummy who's pretending his dummy has a different attitude than him. This is a deception, right? Because dummies are either a fun, entertaining thing, and everyone knows it's a dummy <laughs> and it's fake, or it's a deception because you're actually getting people to believe this thing is real, and that's what it would be. It would actually be deception. So no, God's not deceiving us. It's not modalism. Um, it fits the, the doctrine of the Trinity. Three persons, one God. All right, well, we'll go to the next question. And, and I'm I'm thinking there's similarity, similar facts that are true about the, the, the Holy Spirit. Um, but with without the incarnation to give a give a possible dis, difference there that uh, brings on a different perspective in a way with Jesus that he's going to the cross to suffer and we don't have that difference with the Holy Spirit and the Father. I hope that made sense. But we'll go to your guys' questions. So question number two, this is from Jamie, who says, is the war going on in Israel right now part of a biblical prophecy? Um, um, Jamie, I'm going to give you my short answer on this, okay? Um, well, I'll give you a couple things. One is this, is, is that um, I've definitely been quite a lot. I've been around the circles and the groups who are always talking about how the... Um, the Trinity, the, the Trinity, sorry, the, I'm getting, let me just tell you guys why I'm distracted right now. We, we had a guy who tried to uh, get into our house the other day. Um, and I was not home cause I've been, I've been, I've been away from the home a lot recently cause I've been taking care of a loved one who's who's going through, uh, uh, their last stage on this, on this earth. So, um, that's been taking up a lot, awful lot of my time, which is why I had to reschedule this stream to a random Tuesday, but I wasn't home and someone came to our back door and, um, we heard him. My, my wife heard them trying to open the door. And so, um, man, but if, those of you who guys, guys, you know, you get it. Like I was like, I wish I had been home. <laughs> and my wife responded really well and did, did the right things. And the, the, it scared the person away and they left. Um, but that was like two days ago. And now we've, I put up a ring thing back camera back there with lights and then we, and all this stuff. So we're getting it figured out right now. I'm getting all the notifications every time a cat walks by, which is frequently. And, uh, yeah, that's why I'm distracted. Forgive me as I get the ring set up. I just did it this morning and, um, I need to leave it on to figure out how it works. So now, now when someone breaks in, we'll have it on video and then the cops will be like, we're not going to do anything with that. <laughs> Ultimately, we gotta 
we got to look a little higher for our ultimate protection. But okay, so is the war in Israel right now part of biblical prophecy? Point number one: I've been part of these circles for years that are always looking at current events and trying to figure out how they fit into biblical prophecies. Over the years, I became a bit jaded about this project. Let me clarify, not because I doubt scripture or because I don't think scripture is, has, you know, prophetic statements that will be fulfilled in our world. Okay. Yeah, I believe that I, and I'm premillennial. So I do now I hold this a little loosely because I understand how easily I could be wrong about the fulfillment of future prophecy. So I hold it a little bit loosely, but I do think that there is going to be like this, the, the, the tribulation time, there's going to be a tribulation. There's going to be a thousand year reign of Christ and all that. So those of you who are part of that camp, like I'm in that camp, um, where I became a bit jaded was because I've paid attention. So from the sixties and I wasn't even alive yet, but in the sixties, seventies, eighties, nineties, 2000s now, 2020s now, the fulfillments keep changing. And the people who are trying to tie current events into biblical prophecy, they keep changing their minds on who Gog and Magog are and, and exactly who the this group is going to be and that group's going to be. And, and then they get into weird things like blood moons, which was a massive waste of time if you guys paid attention to that. Um, then they get into things like, well, the Jewish calendar this year is this year in the Jewish calendar, and then this thing's happening, and oh, this is coming up, and then that must be what we read about in this passage in in, in the Old Testament, you know, in the prophecies. Um, if you look at the track record, you realize that what Jesus said about prophecy is a good reminder. There will be wars and rumors of wars, and all these things will come to pass, but the end is not yet. I think that the desire, the, the good desire, to see God moving in the world and to see God fulfilling his word leads us. And, and then combined with the fact that we only live one lifetime and we're alive for, you know, these 20, 80, 130, however many years that it gives us a, a weird perspective on history. So then I, what I do is I see unfulfilled prophecy and I just drop it into my timeline. Like it's going to be fulfilled right then. And I don't look back at history a little bit longer and realize Gosh, if I had been alive when the Black Plague hit, I would have thought I was in Revelation. If I had been alive when, um, I don't know, um, when the the Roman Catholic Church was, was, was persecuting the Protestants, I would have thought that I was in Revelation and the Pope was the Antichrist. Some people did. Um, if I had been alive in the 70s or in the 60s or if I had been alive when, when we were on the verge of nuclear war and they were showing kids how to hide under their desk for, from nuclear bombs hope that works um, then um, I would have thought it was all being fulfilled then right? Depending on when you're alive all of a sudden your, your interpretation of these prophecies changes. What I'm suggesting is this anybody who thinks they're right on saying the, the current war stuff that's going on which is horrible um that it is a fulfillment of specific, not not in general, just turmoil stuff, but specific biblical prophecies that give us a timeline for the end times. Um, what I would have liked to have seen is them having predicted this ahead of time instead of them going, oh, look at the current events. Now let me grab those and superimpose it on scripture just like I did back when it was Cuban Missile Crisis, just like I did back when it was the, 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 the rise of... Russia or the rise of the Islamic State or it was the rise of Germany go back further um, and I just keep sort of importing current events and dropping them on top of scripture I've seen this too many times okay so what I'm saying is 
I'm jaded, and I think I'm jaded in a, in a good way, in a right way here on this on this particular topic. Is it possible? Yes, that it, that these are fulfillment of specific prophecies. But you better you better show it to me in a way that is abundantly clear, and a way that wouldn't equally fit twenty years ago, thirty years ago, eighty years ago, four hundred years ago. Otherwise, I'm going to think you're making the same mistake others have made. Um, Jesus said there'd be wars, rumors of wars, there'd be all kinds of uh, tumultuous stuff going on, and that we shouldn't keep flipping out about everything. We should have wisdom. And so I know of a, of a pastor who made a successful YouTube channel doing these like prophecy, fulfill prophecy things, prophecy update videos every week. And uh, I watched a couple and, and while, while I, the man is, he's a believer. He's, he, from all I know, he loves the Lord, but the man is, is a perfect example of the kind of reckless stuff that I've seen in the past. And I was just like, it's, it's growing. He was getting tons of views and stuff like that. Um, uh, but what, what, what good are views if, if your, your views are wrong? <laughs> so what's the point? Um, I think that this is happening a lot and it's going to keep increasing. It's only going to increase. I keep telling you guys this. I'm warning you, right? It is 2023 right now. The 2000 year mark of all the stuff we read about the new Testament, it is right around the corner. So the people who are going to project prophecy into the next few years is going to just skyrocket. You're going to see it everywhere in 2027, in 2028, in 2030, in 2032, in 2033. There's going to be so many predictions about end times and tribulation and prophecy. Now, is it possible God will do that? Yeah. But the people who are trying to take take things like, well, the thousand years a day and then the days a thousand years and, the, and then the seven days of creation are 7,000 years and the 7,000 years, if you take a young earth creationist view and you get to da, 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 and then the Jewish calendar and then you adjust for daylight savings time, you know, and then you've got like specific predictions for biblical events that we don't have in scripture that, that this is a huge mistake. So is the war in Israel part of prophecy in the general sense of the type of turmoil that we see in the world that the Bible always talks about? Yes, in the specific sense of this is this event, here's where we are in the book of Revelation, or here's where we are in the book of Isaiah. Um, we just clicked over to the next verse or next spot. Uh, that I'm, I'm highly skeptical that we can know that. Oh, question number three, uh, Shy Annie says, in 1 Kings 4, 7 through 19, there are 12 governors for Israel listed. I'm confused by verse 19b. There was one governor. Uh, what's your take on this? 12 or 1? Thanks for your ministry, Mike. Well, thank you for the question, Shai. I'll, I, I've got to tell you, I'm sorry if I don't know the answer. We're just going to read it together and let's see if we can get some clarity by just reading the passage. So 1 Kings 4, 7 through 19, how many governors are there? I may not have the answer for you right now, but um, I don't know this one off the top of my head. Solomon had, uh, I'm reading the ESV, okay? Solomon had 12 officers over all Israel who provided food for the king and his household. Each man had to make provision for one month in the year. These were their names. And I'm just going to jump out and say, let's remember that it said that for one month in the year. These were their names. Ben-Hur in the hill country of Ephraim, Ben-Decker in Makaz, uh, Shalbim, Ben-Shemesh, and Elenbeth-Hanan, Ben-Hesed in Arubath. Uh, to him belonged Soka, uh, Soko and all the land of Hefer, uh, Ben-Abinadab in all... In, <laughs> Nefathdor. Okay, look, it's it. You know, you guys are probably some of you are like, oh, I'm gonna remember the way Mike pronounces these names because he probably gets them all right. Like, I actually don't even worry about getting the names right because when you actually learn the real Hebrew names, you realize you're getting almost all of them wrong, anyways. 
So people are arguing for no reason. Uh, he had Tepheth, the daughter of Solomon, as his wife. Bana, the son of Ahilud, and in Tanakh, Megiddo, and all Beth Sheen, that is beside Zarethan, below Jezreel, and from Beth Sheen to Abel Meholah. I wonder if Tolkien took inspiration from scripture about just having so many names that you could never remember. Um, <laughs> anyway, um, joke meme. Okay, verse 13. And how long are we going? There's like six chapters. I got to read it this right. Okay. Bin Geber in Ramoth Gilead, he had the villages of Jer, the son of Manasseh, which are in Gilead. And he had the region of Argob, which is in Bashan, 60 great cities with walls and bronze bars. By the way, these passages that might seem strange, I keep interrupting it, but there's reasons. <laughs> um, uh, they're actually, to me, contribute to the historical factuality of scripture because only real people who really cared about these things and actually lived around these times would probably bother with this sort of thing. It's at least some sort of soft support for the historicity of scripture that it's going to be listing specific guys for specific um, villages in such detail. And the names of scripture, and they've done studies on this because you could say, well, they made them all up. But the names that we read in scripture, say in Genesis, um, they match the the historical names of people from those time periods and those places. So that if you think First Kings was written from a different place in a different time later on, they they somehow picked the right names is the thing. And that's so historicity of the scripture here. Um, verse 14, Ahinadab, the son of Edo and Mahanaim, uh, Ahimaz in Naphtali, he had taken Basemath, the daughter of Solomon, as his wife. Bana, the son of, the son of Hushai in Asher, uh, Biloth. And I know I don't have to read these, but I just want to. I just feel like it's honoring the scripture. Jehoshaphat, the son of Parua in Issachar. Shimei, the son of Elah in Benjamin. Geber, the son of Uri in the land of Gilead, the country of Sihon, king of the Amorites, and Og, king of Bashan. And there was one governor who was over the land. Okay, so all that... Yeah, totally understandably and understandable for you. And I think I have an answer, Cheyenne. Um, why does it say 12? It lists the 12 and where they lived. They're all from different places. So why does it say there was one governor? Because as you read about 12 and you read where they're from, it's natural to think that each of them is a governor of that region. Okay, I'm reading about different people from different regions. So how can you say there was one governor? There's obviously 12. But the key was in the beginning that we read, Solomon had 12 officers over all Israel who provided food for the king and his household. Each man had to make provision for one month in the year. These were their names. These governors, they're not governors like of California or that kind of governor. These are men who are, um, as I understand the passage, they're men who are going like as representatives of different lands of Israel to bring support to the king. And so for one month, you get Ben-Hur. And for that month of the year, there's 12 months of the year. He is the one guy who's the one governor. Then the next month, you get the next one, Ben Decker. Okay, then you get the next one and the next one. So that after reading the 12 names, you can say there was one governor who was over the land. Um, that would be my understanding. If this governor is the same reference, although now I'm wondering if I'm... Yeah, if the phrase governor in verse 19 is a reference to one of these 12. There's one over the land at a time. Um, unless the word governor is referring to something later on or something separate, like it's just a little statement at the end. Oh, and there's a governor over the land. But um, King Solomon was the one over all Israel, so I'm not sure if it would mean that. So yeah, 
there you go. More research could be done on that, but there's there's some thoughts. Most of our answers about scripture, about little things like that, little like, hey, whoa, that didn't make sense. Most of them can be understood and answered by just rereading the passage in context. Um, I'm glad you asked your question, Cheyenne, because so many people would have the same question. And it just reminds us that the answers for our questions are often found right in the text itself, right in the very thing we read. And there's just sometimes a lot to read and it's very easy for us to miss details. All right, Julia has a question. Verses like Matthew 6, 14 make me feel like there are sins so bad that if you commit it, like unforgiveness, you're 100% not a Christian. I feel like I have to maintain my own salvation. Um, well, Julia, um, I think that um, you might be taking Matthew 6, 14 a little, a little too, a little too woodenly. Maybe I'll use that word. That's an overused word. I know. Uh, at least I think it is. But Matthew six fourteen. Let's let's look at it. Uh, if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. In one sense, the stakes couldn't be any higher. Unforgiveness becomes connected to salvation. You don't forgive, you're not forgiven. You forgive, you are forgiven. Yet, clearly, from the teaching of Scripture, there's a lot more to salvation than that. This isn't the only fact about salvation. The way that we actually get saved is not through forgiving others. The way we get saved is through simply trusting in Christ. Now, we might repent of our bitterness and of our anger and of our wrath and all that kind of stuff, unforgiveness, but none, that doesn't save us. It's not earning salvation. So if me forgiving others isn't earning salvation, then is me for not forgiving others? Is that maybe it's also true? This is not causing me to be unforgiven. Maybe what's happening here, and this is, I know this might sound a little strange to some people. This is what I currently think about the passage, at least for you to consider. I think that this is perhaps talking about evidence for salvation um, or fruit of salvation. I'll put it that way. When you get saved, it's not like you just believe in Jesus and you walk away the same. When you trust in Christ, the Holy Spirit indwells you. That's God. It's not just a spiritual happiness you receive. This is the holy, right? Holy, holy, holy. Morally perfect and pure God's spirit coming into your life and dwelling with you. He regenerates you, gives you a new heart, starts working in you, creates in you a new person so that any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away, all things have become new, so that you can put off the old person, like Ephesians says, and put on the new person who's created in true righteousness and holiness, Scripture says. So, like, when you get saved, you're changed. Like, things change about you. You don't stay the same. So then it can make sense to tell somebody, if you are saved, you're regenerated, you're born again, you're moving from a place of bitterness and unforgiving to a place of forgiving other people and not being bitter and letting go of those things. Now, does that mean you always forgive every single time or you're not a Christian? This is where I say I don't want to take it too woodenly. I think there are genuine Christians who struggle with forgiving people. I think that scripture seems to even support this because Paul tells the Christians in Ephesus, he's like, forgive each other, forgive one another as Christ has forgiven you. And so... You may struggle with forgiveness. It may be that there's a battle there in your life. It doesn't mean that you're automatically now unsaved as if forgive every single thing anyone's ever done to you. And there's this one thing that, man, you just really struggle with it. This person m molested a, a child that you care about, your kid or something. And you're like, oh, Lord, I'm trying, but oh, I feel it. I hate them. 
I hate them, Lord. Help me. I, and, but you're still bringing it to God. You're still coming to God. I don't think that this is where you just, you're gone, right? And you're not maintaining exactly in that sense. Um, I tend at least, at least my understanding right now, and I'm always open to change my theology, my understanding of scripture based on scripture. Um, but my understanding right now would be that I'm more, I'm more looking at evidence of salvation. Um, not even how someone maintains, but really how somebody, um, lives out the fact that they are in fact saved. They're coming to God. They have a heart of, of, of yielding to God. They may struggle with, un, with unforgiveness. They may have someone, they're like, I know I haven't forgiven them, but I know I need to. And they just keep praying. And if this is you start praying, Lord, help me get to the place where I can let this go. I, I, I'm just really struggling with this. Please help me. Show me the cross again. Show me how much grace you've given me. Show me my sin on your back again so that I can let this go. You will deal with them. If they need to be judged, you will judge them. I need to let it go. Keep going there. Um, yeah, I hope that those things help you out. All right, we'll go to question number five. This is from Liberty Lisa, who says, can you please explain what it meant in 1 Samuel when the spirit left Saul? <sighs> Interesting question. <laughs> Interesting. Okay, so I'll, I'll just summarize for you guys. Um, uh, there's... There's a lot. Actually, I, I'm not even sure how many things you're asking about here, Liberty Lisa. So I'm just going to guess because there's a spirit who departs from Saul. Then there's another spirit who comes to torment Saul. Um, but let's say this is in the New Testament. We tend to think of the Holy Spirit as related to salvation. In the last question, I talked about this. You're saved. The Holy Spirit enters your life. But in the Old Testament, in particular with the kings of Israel and and the judges of Israel, like, like um, um, Samson, or David or Saul, we have an anointing of God's spirit. That's not exactly about salvation. It seems to be about empowering them for a calling and anointing them for a task, not just salvation. So in a sense, this is kind of like Jesus. When the Holy Spirit descends on him like a dove, this is not saving Jesus. This is an anointing for, for his, uh, for his role as Messiah and to show his approval, God's approval, the father's approval of the son. So when you, when you have Saul, he's anointed as king and it's, it's the Holy Spirit comes upon him to show God, God is blessing. God is using this king. Um, he prophesies, does all this stuff. Later, he's rebelling against God so much. The spirit leaves him and then he gets tormented instead. And then David is anointed with the spirit. And then uh, he's anointed by, Sa by, by Samuel, like li literally with oil and stuff. But, but God's spirit actually anoints David and he's actually anointed not not just for salvation here we're talking because most of israel was not experiencing this lots of people in israel believed in god and they were they were going to be in in eternal glory when they died right so they were effectively saved even though that experience of the indwelling was not there but david had a different saul had a different samson had a different and so we have the spirit come and go from uh from saul he rebels against god he betrays god and then boom, the spirit's gone, comes to David. David sins against God greatly. And then he writes in Psalm 51, Lord, take not your Holy Spirit from me. Because David knows like Saul, he could lose this anointing and this calling and his position as king. He could lose it. And even after his thing with Bathsheba and he murders Uriah, he's worried that this is going to happen. He's guilty of bloodshed. He's like, please don't take your spirit from me. And God affirms him out of pure grace, not any works or any goodness of David. Out of grace, he's like, no, no, I'm going to set up your seed after you, referring ultimately to the Messiah, right? That's, and he's going to dwell on, on the throne forever. Um, 
Samson had the spirit, but the spirit left him and he didn't know it. If you read about when, when the whole haircut thing happened and then the spirit came upon him at the end there to anoint him to do a deliverance for Israel. This isn't really, <clears throat> these three examples, Saul, David, and Samson aren't, I think, salvation related. I think they're anointing and task related, a calling that God placed on them for a particular purpose. I hope that helps explain. Um, number six, Jeremy Palma says, hi, Pastor Mike. Hope you and your family are greatly blessed as your ministry is to us. Thank you, Jeremy. Uh, it means the world to me, brother. It really does. Um, maybe a silly question, but does Revelation 7, 9 apply to Vatican City despite its size and hosting unbiblical stuff? Well, let's look at Revelation 7, 9 and let's think about that question together. Vatican City, you guys know. You all know what that is, right? Vatican City. Um, th th that small, very small country. <laughs> um, after this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. Could this refer to Vatican City is the question? Um, maybe there's there's a background here I don't, I'm not familiar with, Revelation 7-9, because because maybe there's a claim that I'm not familiar with where they're like, this is this is Vatican City because people from all nations are coming there. Maybe when they bring in the new pope or just to visit uh, uh, yearly pilgrimages there, you know, for Easter and stuff like that. Um, maybe they're saying, look, there's people from every tribe and every nation standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Um, well, I, I would say uh, definitely not. Um, wh wherever you locate this, Revelation 7, the context here is he's in heaven, right? And this is, this is, this is, let me just back up and see. Okay. Um, then I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called aloud with a voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. Jehovah's Witnesses like to claim that they know what this number is and that it's not what it says it is. <laughs> 12,000 from each tribe, from Judah, Reuben, Gad, Asher, Naphtali, Manasseh, Simeon, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, Benjamin. Um, they're Jews. They're not They're not Jehovah Witnesses. No, that's not how that works. All right. Um, after this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples. So those were the Jews that were sealed. Now there's another multitude, a whole bunch of other people, and they're not, they're not Jews. And where are they standing? Before the throne. So I was just giving the context. They're not Jews is the point. They're, so there's uh, people from both sides, from the Jewish and the non-Jewish community, and they're all going to be saved and approaching God. But they're standing before the throne and before the Lamb. This is in heaven. In Revelation, his, his, his sight of the throne, he goes, I saw the throne. I saw him seated on it. This is a heavenly vision. The Lamb is in heaven. Uh, this is not... Um, Something that's taking place on earth. So it's not Vatican City. Um, and they're crying with a loud voice. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne. The throne that's in heaven. Um, and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Can I summarize it in one sentence what we just read here? Gratitude. Sometimes I am freshly aware of how great God is. Not just great things God's done for me, but
but just his greatness. If I didn't even exist, God would be so amazingly great. Right? His wisdom, glory, thanksgiving belongs to him, right? Honor and power, there be it, it says may these things be to God because it's like God, you are the one to be honored. You are the one who has all the power. You are the one who has all the wisdom, all the blessings we should be blessing you because all the blessings are from you, Lord. Um, when we have those moments when we realize how amazing God is, it pulls us up out of the muck that we're in in our daily lives. And it just brings a, brings us joy, rightfully so. Anyways, this is happening in heaven, I think is the bottom line. I wouldn't connect it to Vatican City in any way. Um, there's, there's, there's no throne there. God's throne is not in Vatican City. I got no reason to think that. All right, let's uh, go to question number seven. And I got to give a quick parent warning. So Damien has a question here, but I'm giving, I'm, I'm, I haven't read it yet, but, but uh, Sarah, my assistant's like, hey, parent warning, let them know. You Okay, you had your warning. You knew you should mute it or skip this part. Um, Hi, Mike, can a biblical case be made for the purpose of, of sex within marriage being for procreation and intimacy or pleasure and not just procreation? Is sex without the possibility of procreation evil. Um, I can make a strong biblical case that says that sex for the for the sake of meeting the, the desires of your spouse is biblically required. <laughs> okay? There's times where that can happen. Medical issues. Someone's going to major emotional problems or whatever. Okay, there's or distance because of travel or, or, or career stuff. Like, there's times where that can happen, but... Um, there is a teaching, and in, 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 believe it or not, yeah, it's just in your scripture, 1 Corinthians 7. But before we get there, though, I'll tell you. Um, imagine saying that food is only for nourishment, but God doesn't want us to eat food because it tastes good. Like That would be kind of silly, right? Or like air is only for breathing. It's never so that you can go, boy, it just feels good to breathe. It's just pleasurable to breathe. Like if it's, but there is... There was like an anti-sex thing going on in this ascetic movement in the in the first several centuries of the early church. And they were anti this sort of thing. And it, it didn't just start with the church fathers and some of their communities later where they were like, some people were even lauding the idea of a couple's getting married and never, never sleeping together, right? And you get this in Eastern stuff. Gandhi was like this, like he would never sleep with his own wife. And like, I'm just like, you're, you're just being a punk. Like when you do this, like this is, this is, this is bad. This is unhealthy. Of course, Gandhi was weird for other reasons. He would sleep with other women who were not his wife and just have them in the bed with him so he could test himself. Pervert is the thing, right? Maybe he was great in some other ways, but if you're a human, you got, you got some, you got issues and he did too. So that being said, the biblical, the general biblical idea is that things that are sanctioned by God, food, even drink in moderation appropriately. Um, these things are not just functionally, pragmatically helpful in some in some immediate beneficial way that's like, say, health-wise. They're also intended to be pleasurable and enjoyable. Laughter and, and community. You know, I don't just get together with people so we can do work projects. Sometimes you get together just to hang out, and that's a, that's a positive thing. So sex is a positive, wonderful thing that God intends for married couples to enjoy and whether or not they're able to procreate. And scripture teaches this directly. So in 1 Corinthians, they were dealing with this kind of issue. People who were, it seems they were dealing with this sort of idea that people who were married were, some of them were just not sleeping together. 
Um, like they were thinking that it was like, oh, that's a bad thing or we shouldn't do that. Maybe because they couldn't procreate. Maybe because they were past the age of kids. Maybe because they thought it was holier to not be physically intimate. Um, so he says, now concerning the matters about which you wrote, and he quotes them. Notice the quotes. Right? It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. This is probably something that they were teaching each other at the time and Paul's responding to it. Someone was like, hey, Paul, it seems, let's read, let's let's do a little conjecture here. And I'm not alone in this. Okay, lots of commentaries think this. Um, that the Corinthians were, were saying, hey, Paul, uh, some of us are like, they won't even sleep together with their own spouse. Like, because they just kind of believe this general truth. It's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. So abstinence is considered holy somehow. Um, Paul has a different perspective on that. So he responds to that and says, but because of temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. Meaning that what? The, the sexual intimacy between a husband and wife, part of it is to just gratify the sexual desires. Part of it is just to gratify their sexual desires they have. That's a, that's a positive thing. You should be looking to them for those things. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, a euphemism for the obvious. And likewise, the wife to her husband. Yes, you, husband, you, now it doesn't say you can take for a guy who's like, I'm, I feel like this and you don't wife, but I'm going to take it because I have a right. No, 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 no. No, 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 no. That's evil. That's abuse. That's a bad word. The husband should give to his wife, and the wife should give, but it's still in their power. They're still controlling their own body here. It's just what they're what they morally should do. It doesn't mean you can force anything. Uh, for the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Talk about a countercultural thing to say. Um, do not deprive one another. That's that is. That is like, oh, you're, you're past childbearing age or you can't have kids for some reason, so you shouldn't have sex. But actually, Scripture says don't deprive one another. There's the general rule. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again. Normal, healthy sexual interaction between a husband and wife is, is, is the biblical teaching, actually. So that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. And it's not a surprise that the communities and the groups who have pushed um, celibacy on people who do ministry, like Roman Catholicism, have had really dismal rates of because of their lack of self-control of them, of, of abuse, of sexual abuse and stuff like that, because they're not following scripture. Now, there's more to be said about it. Uh, being single has positives that Paul goes on and, and talks about in 1 Corinthians 7. Uh, being unmarried has positives if you have self-control. But there is a truth that we get from this passage um, that it's considered to be a positive thing and it's not even bad to be gratifying your desires with your spouse. That is a wonderful thing. Marriage is the right place for that. There should be no shame. There should be no stigma attached to that um, as long as you're not doing something damaging, harmful, gross, fill in the blank. Um, you're doing, you're doing what's, what's natural. All right. Um, so there you go. All right. We'll go to question number eight. The word was God has a question says, hi, Mike, how do you feel about songs that state you make me whole again? It's my understanding that before faith in Christ, we aren't whole saved or forgiven thoughts. Um, I guess I would need to ask you a little, uh, some more questions for clarity. So the phrase, you make me whole again, I, I guess, you know, let me answer it this way. The phrase, you make me whole again, is a rather um, poetic phrase that could very easily be stated to refer to very different things. 
So when I got saved, I could say, God, you, you made me whole, but I couldn't really say again because, because I wasn't whole before. Like you say, like I was simple, I not, God didn't restore me to wholeness. Like I was, I was perfect as a one-year-old little baby. I was holy in all ways and all my desires were pure and I was communing with God at all times. Like, nah, not really. No, I was, I was like everybody else cute, but messed up, you know? <laughs> and, um, and so I, I'm not made whole again. God made me whole. And when I say whole there, I'm talking about he saved me. He he regenerated me. He brought me to life. But he didn't bring me back to life like I was previously alive. But there's another side of this. that I, This is why I say it's poetic. Because what if someone says, well, yeah, I'm not saying I was saved. But as a child, there was a lot of things I was sort of ignorant about and kind of innocent of because I had never... And as I got older, I committed so many sins and I brought myself down these dark paths. And so I had messed myself up way worse than I was at four or five or seven. Um, so the, um, yo, oh, serious clarifying. Yeah. Whole again, the phrase again. Okay. So I think I'm answering your question. Um, and so someone might say, Lord, you made me whole again. And then they're referring to not that I was saved and I got resaved or something. They just mean, um, I didn't just start out a sinner. I committed a bunch of sins that brought me to darker and darker paths. And it's like you've restored me to, to before I had done that. And you did even more than that. So in that sense, I would say, I'm not going to argue with you. If you want to say God made you whole again, and you mean that, that's great. Um, most people probably don't think that deeply about the lyrics of songs. I do. You do. <laughs> most people don't. So they're probably just thinking, God, you've, 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 you made me whole. And the word again comes out and they're not even thinking about it. Um, I think the majority are like that. Unfortunately, I wish everybody would sit and meditate on the lyrics all the time the way I do. Um, of course, you know, we all want everybody to think the way we do. Um, that being said, yeah, so I, I, I agree with you. Technically, again, could be a problem depending on what you mean by whole, but I wouldn't make a huge beef about it. And if you're singing a song ever in church and you think, hey, maybe you guys can sing that. I don't know what you mean by it. I can't quite sing it. Just change the words. You made me whole my friend, <laughs> that still rhymes, right? You can do that. Yeah. You made me whole. I can't think of any other rhymes there. So that I just do with my friend. And I, I do this in church every once in a while. I'll just sing my own lyric to a, 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 a part of a song or, or stay quiet during a, a part of a verse or something because I can't in good conscience sing it. I'm not casting much of judgment on the rest of the church as a result. I'm just trying to, to worship God with a pure conscience. Everybody else can do their own thing. Uh, number nine, follower of Jesus says, how should we deal with a pastor who is unwilling to receive correction or anything against his own convictions? It wouldn't be a, as big of an issue, but he preaches his ideas as truth. Uh, for instance, he teaches you can't drink alcohol at all. Um, this, this is a challenging one. Um, I don't, I don't have a sort of a, 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 like a standard reply to this because situations can be so different, but, but I, but I will try to give you something that might help. So if you have a, if you have a pastor, let's say hypothetically, you're in a situation where you have a pastor who's unwilling to receive correction or anything against his own convictions. So there's a pride issue there. They don't think they have a pride issue. Nobody does. Pride is, pride is like a person who has bad body odor, but they can't smell their own body odor, but everybody else can. That's pretty much what pride is like. I think it's a good illustration of it. Um, um, pride is the, the pride there is they're overconfident 
And when people try to correct them, they either don't believe that they could be wrong or they think those people are not as smart as me or maybe they're sinfully compromised. Maybe it's not smart. Maybe it's spiritual. They're not as spiritual as me um, or, or whatever the reason is. They're not listening to the correction. Alcohol is a great example. You know, I, I wanted to be against, against alcohol. Now there's a lot to be against. Okay. So I'm 50% against alcohol because, um, it is abused. It's abused all the time. It's super dangerous in that regard. It's very unhealthy. And it's scripture says like, yeah, the drunkards not inherit the kingdom of, of heaven. Like it actually says this, this is a big deal. Then there's the other side where it seems to be that God has given alcohol as a blessing, something that we're supposed to be able to enjoy um, in in genuine moderation without being addicted, without it controlling you, without becoming, um, without losing your sobriety. So becoming drunk um, and those things. And so there's, it's both sides. It's like, it's like the topic of, of sexual relations between a man and a woman. This is 50% great, 50% terrible because in marriage, beautiful, wonderful, encouraged, sacred. Outside of marriage, destructive, harmful, confusing, causes all kinds of chaos, uh, disease, um, all sorts of horrible things. So this person is just like, no, I'm just against alcohol. Yet scripture does have this other 50% side of it where it, it does. Now, you don't have to drink, but you certainly can't tell everybody else they're not allowed to do something that I don't know Jesus did and the apostles did and affirmed and God actually commanded it in some cases. Um and anyway, I have my teaching on alcohol, if you guys haven't seen it, where I go through everything the Bible teaches on the topic of alcohol, positive and negative. And you could just, if you type Mike Winger alcohol, it'll pop right up. I'll link it down below later on too. Um, so th that being said, it is concerning that a pastor would would, would have that attitude. Um, I, I, you know, you you need to use wisdom. Look, do, do, you, do you have a voice to speak into this person's life? Do you have authority over them because you're also a pastor or maybe even a senior pastor in that fellowship? You need to pull them aside because pride will ruin him. And this is a pride issue ultimately. But more than that, he's also pushing unbiblical rules on people in a way that might be really harmful. Now, maybe that alcohol is one of the only things where he sort of is is too aggressive and is not biblical. He's teaching something. He's teaching a, an, an unbiblical rule. Now, who made rules in the Bible that went beyond the teaching of scripture and made life harder and more strict for people in unnecessary ways? Those were the Pharisees. That, that was one of the things the Pharisees would do, binding heavy burdens and placing them upon men's shoulders. Um, I'm not saying the man's a Pharisee, okay? I think that's going too far. And I don't think the New Testament intended us to take the word Pharisee and use it as a libel a, a, or a label that you can put on people and go, you're a Pharisee, you're a Pharisee, you're a Pharisee. Um, not saying you can never do that, but we, it's happened way too much. Probably be better off if we never did it again. Um, but it's okay to say to somebody, the Pharisees did do the thing you're doing right now specifically, and I can I can show you the scripture on that. Um, now, you have choices, and your choices are few. <laughs> you can pray, which you should. You can seek to correct them privately. Maybe you should, maybe you shouldn't, depending on the scenario. Um, you know, if this is a sin he's got against you and others, Matthew 18 tells you to go to him privately, but if he's hurting other people publicly and it's not just you it's a group of people then maybe take it to the elders and say look i'm concerned this is not biblical and there's there's some concerns here and bring scripture with you don't just show up offhand like get yourself ready get, have specific examples of flaws of specific examples of where scripture refutes the things that are being taught take it to the other leaders in their church now if there is no other oversight if there's no other leader and he's an arrogant individual like this then pray about whether you should be seeking a different fellowship 
This is my super generic advice. Your situation is way more complicated than whatever I know. And I pray God gives you wisdom. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm sorry going through that. Oh, yeah. God, God bless you and give you wisdom. Let's go to Devoted to Detroit, who says, how are you or how are we to count it all joy when we face trials and temptations, as James chapter one says, I get you. We've been going through a lot of trials and temptations in my own family recently with um, just an end of life situation with a family member. I don't share all the details with you guys because my family didn't sign up to have all their public stuff share with people. And I try to maintain as much privacy because even though most of you are are great, there's a minority who will like go and start trying to find people on Facebook and reach out to them and, and show up at their place and stuff like that. And, um, and as much as that might be done out of compassion, it's not appropriate. And it ends up not being received the way it was intended. So that being said, um, I get you. I fully get you. Let's read the passage and see if we can answer it. Uh, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Your question is absolutely answered in these very verses. So first I'm told to count it all joy when I meet trials. And you're naturally go, what, how do I do that? Why would I, why would I think trials, which is a, is, is another way of saying painful circumstances in life. Why would I count that joy? Well, it doesn't mean you're actually enjoying it. Counting something as joy is not the same as enjoying it. That's great. Cause I don't enjoy trials, but I can count it joy. Now counting joy is different. I'm going to consider this a, a joyful thing. I'm going to, maybe we'll put it this way. Um, when I was going to work, like a 40 hour a week, nine to five type job, um, I didn't enjoy having to get up and go to work, but I counted that time at work as a paycheck. And that paycheck meant I could pay for food and housing and whatever other needs, giving to ministry, things like that. I counted it as in I'm doing the work, but I'm thinking about a benefit that comes that's separate from the work. I'm in the trial, but I'm thinking about a benefit that comes that's separate from the trial. And that benefit brings me joy. The trial doesn't bring me joy, but the benefit does. What's the benefit? Well, the testing of my faith produces steadfastness. This might not sound like a great benefit to a lot of people, but it is. Your character is more valuable than probably you realize. Your character, your internal character, the who you are of who you are. When you go through trials as a Christian, you feel like you're getting smaller. You're shrinking. Pieces of you are getting chopped off from the trial. It feels that way a lot. But your faith is getting stronger. Even when you are shrinking and, and your confidence in yourself and in your capacities and in, and in whatever, you know, you thought you, you were, we all want to be, maybe it's a guy thing. I don't know. Ladies, you can tell me. Uh, guys, we all want to be a superhero, okay? We all want to be a strong hero, not just like some meathead, okay? We want to be strong in all the ways that you can be strong. Trials make you feel like you're none of those things and understandably and rightly so. But as you're getting crushed, your faith is growing. Your trust in Christ is growing. This is why Paul says, when I'm weak, then I'm strong. I've learned how to be abased, how to be brought low, how to suffer. I've learned how to be in need because when I'm weak, 
then I am strong. Paul had this character, this the, the who he is of who he is, like at the center of him, if, the, if that makes any sense at all. I'm using the wrong words because I can't find the right ones. You know what I mean, right? This like who he is-ness inside of him grew in strength that was not dependent on his abilities or his capacities, but was dependent on his trust in Christ. And he became strong in weakness. And so this is why Christ tells him, my strength is made perfect in weakness. My power is made perfect in your weakness. When you go through trials, you are growing in ways that that are things you would never pay attention to because you never had to, because you were never so weak as, as you are now. Your faith is being tested and it produces a steadfastness in you, a patience in you. And if you let that steadfastness, that patience, if you let this just wait it out and trust in God, if you let it have its full effect or let it continue to work in your life, you can be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. God is interested in your character and your character you will carry with you into heaven for all eternity. The, the sufferings of this present time, they shrink you down in different ways and it feels that way, I think. But they're growing your character. They're making you a stronger person in a different way, in a way that's connected to your relationship with God and your reliance upon him. And you will have that strength and that maturity and that blessing for eternity. That's how you can count it joy. You count it joy because this is terrible and this hurts, but this is temporary and it will end. And I will carry the strength I get from it as I learn strength through weakness, that his power will be made perfect in me. I will carry that into eternity and I will be a better person as a result. You can do that and hopefully have some ability to count it all as joy. Number 11, devoted to Detroit says, how are, oh, that was 11. That was 11. Did I skip one? I did. I skipped number 10, so I'm switching them. Okay, number 11 now is officially seeking truth. Who, uh, with Bianca Trish, who says, she, you must have your own channel with like your own uh, videos and stuff, right? Because you can tell, like who would have that name if you're not doing like a podcast or something. Um, so hello, pastor, please. Can you help me understand why in Proverbs 2, the Bible refers to wisdom as she? How do we argue with those who try to speak about multiple gods or LGBTQ plus people saying he is neither gender? Oh, okay. Um, they're just being numbskulls about the scripture. <laughs> that was a little blunt. Um, Proverbs talks about wisdom frequently and refers to wisdom as a woman. And it's, it's, it's poetry. That's the bottom line is it's poetry. Wisdom is like, is, is a woman who actually goes around the city talking to people. Now to think that this is a description of the actual gender of some sort of deity figure named wisdom is a, mis is a misunderstanding because it's all poetry. Um, uh, I wonder if I can uh, maybe find a, a section of Proverbs that might be a good example of this. Um, here's one section. Does not wisdom call? Does not understanding raise her voice? On the heights beside the way, at the crossroad, she takes her stand. Beside the gates in front of the town, at the entrance of the portals, she cries aloud. To you, O man, I call, and my cry is to the children of man. O simple ones, learn prudence. O fools, learn sense. Hear, for I will speak noble things. From my lips will come what is right, for my mouth will utter truth. Wickedness is an abomination to my lips. All the words of my mouth are righteous, and there's nothing twisted or crooked in them. They're all straight to him who understands and right to those who find knowledge. Take my instruction instead of silver. Wisdom is important. And knowledge rather than choice gold, for wisdom is better than jewels, and all that you may desire cannot compare with her. 
okay, if you take wisdom to be a literal being, then you're then you have to take it as she's in every city. She's going all over the place in the interests of the city, and she's shouting out at the crossroads at the heights beside the way. She's literally, doesn't she cry out? Doesn't she raise her voice? If you want to take her as literal, then you need to take it that she's literally doing these things too. Obviously, it's poetry. It's not intended to be taken that way. Wisdom is personified here, and the need for us to grow in wisdom and to learn wisdom um, is, is being expressed. That's the thing. Now, if you take her as literal, then you have to take her as she coexists with other beings, prudence, knowledge, and discretion. I dwell with prudence and I find knowledge and discretion. Wisdom's like, where's knowledge? I'm going to find you. Like they're playing hide and seek for eternity, right? Knowledge and discretion are hiding and wisdom's like, I'm going to find you. Um, that's, that's, that's okay. That's terrible. I take it back. Um, so the you could go on and, and it talks in, in proverbs it says like wisdom was was the first thing created before he made the worlds he brought me forth i i think it's all poetry it's not about wisdom being wisdom here is pictured poetically as a being um poetically why feminine why is wisdom a girl because in hebrew the word is feminine um, that's probably part of the reason why we tend to in, in 21st century, we tend to think, well, why is, why is wisdom a girl? Wisdom's a girl. And we translate this into the battle of the sexes stuff that we think about that nobody thought about until recently, <laughs> at least not in the way we do. Not that they never thought about it, but not in the way that we do in, in our 21st century. And But we don't want to hijack scripture into, into our culture without realizing we're doing it. So yeah, that would be my answer, um, my thinking on that. Um, yeah, wisdom, she's just... Uh, poetic picture because the book of Proverbs is stressing how important it is for us to grow in wisdom, to do right things, good things, smart things in our lives. Yeah. I love Proverbs. Question 12. Leisurely Luke says, what is the best way to dismantle modalism in a loving way to someone? Um, I, I mean, my tactic is always the same for this kind of stuff, uh, whether it's the best way. I, I, I don't know. I, but my tactic is always the same. It's go to specific verses that that prove modalism wrong and then ask them questions um so we we looked at a verse earlier where jesus was saying you know not my will be done but yours um to the father let me take us there so here i'll give you an example if you're a modalist you you could respond in the comments what, what would you say to this right i'm not i'm not here to insult you we both we both think the bible's true Right. So let, let's let's let scripture guide us into what we believe about God. So it says here, um, and maybe I ask them to read it. Would, would you read this out loud and let them read it? They say, so and going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cut pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. So it asked the modalist, like when when Jesus is talking to the father, how do you explain that on modalism? And then I just let them talk. And maybe they'll say, oh, well. Um, it's just for our sake so we can understand God better, you know, um, you know, that, that, that really the father is the son. He just, you know, he's just, he's doing this so we can understand what, what's happening a little better. Oh, okay. So how do you explain the last part where he says, not as I will, but as you will, how is it that the son would have somehow a different will, different desire here than the father? How do you explain that? And just let them talk, let them talk. And depending on what they say, you ask another question. Maybe you go to another scripture. So I would pull up some, this is again, just, just just my approach. I would just have ready several scriptures that I think are really good for turning the lights on, on the problem with modalism. Um, and 
I would walk them through those, have them read the verses and then ask them questions about them. And then know that you might just be, you might not change their mind in that one conversation, but you might give them something to think about. I like what uh, Greg Kokel says, you, you put like a little rock in their shoe and they, they just, they can't get out of their head. And because you didn't do it offensively, you did it as gently as you could. Um, they don't walk away from the conversation. Cause here's what happens. You guys have heard, you've, you've, you've had this happen in your life. I've had it in mine. You talk to somebody and they walk away and you're thinking, wow, I really, I really helped them. I really showed them where they were wrong, you know, and, and not arrogantly. You're just, you, you care and you want to help, but they walk away and they forget the whole conversation except for the part they got offended by. And later on, they're like, well, you, I'm mad at you. <laughs> and sometimes being offended by people is a self-defense mechanism for hiding the fact that you were just wrong, right? You, yeah, I was factually wrong, but I'm offended by the way you did that. And so, you know, especially in our culture, we live in a high offense culture. So it can be helpful to try to be as inoffensive as possible. Now, sometimes offensive is the right way to go. I'm not saying there's a rule that you can never be offensive to people. Sometimes you just got to tell them you're just denying scripture. You're rebelling against God. You're clearly just committed to this wrong belief about the nature of God. And no matter what the Bible says, you're not going to listen. Maybe there's a right time to do that. But I don't assume it's that time unless I have some real good reason. Uh, number 13, Albanian Andy says, Joshua 513, who is the commander of the Lord's army? Is this a Christophany, another Christophany? And why do we read so little about him if he helped Joshua in his ventures? Um, let's go to Joshua 5.13. So Joshua's, you know, this is towards the beginning of the whole Joshua thing. He's, he's heading. So Moses leads the people out of Egypt, 40 years in the wilderness. Moses dies, hands over the control to Joshua. Joshua leads the people into the land. And here it says, when Joshua was by Jericho, which is like, right, this is the beginning of them entering the land. They're like, God's going to show his power in Jericho. Let me show you that I'm the one who does the deliverance. I, you just need to stay faithful to me and I'm going to take care of this stuff for you. Uh, when Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, a man was standing before him with his sword drawn in his hand. And we're like, who is this man? This is a great mystery in scripture. And Joshua went to him and said to him, are you for us or for our adversaries? And I love the answer, right? The man says, no. <laughs> <laughs> love it this is just it's it's perfect god are you for me or for my adversaries no question is am, am i on god's side not is god on my side there, there is there is a subtle difference there um, and he said no but i am the commander of the army of the lord now i have come the commander of the army of the lord now i have come and joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him what does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the, of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take off your sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. And that's it. There's like not much we get about this guy, right? There's a pretty short little section. Um, there's a little hints in the passage. He says, you know, are you for us or for our adversaries? He's called a man. Okay. Well, now it doesn't necessarily mean human. Okay. They're not like, well, you know, in ancient Hebrew, they were thinking, is it Klingon or human? When I say man, what exactly do I, right? They're just, man refers to like something like a man. It's like a man. Is it where they say, well, did it have human DNA? I don't think the word's meant to tell us that. Um, but with a drawn sword in his hand, Joshua goes to him. Are you forester adversaries? No, I'm the commander of the army of the Lord. I mean, that could be Jesus as a, a Christophany. He could be the commander. That title could also be held by somebody else because 
God may have more than one commander for his armies, sub-commanders, so to speak. Um, and he says, now I have come. But look at the response. Joshua falls on his face and worships and says to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? Now, in this passage, there's a subtle thing there. He worships, but it could easily be just an angelic being and not a Christophany. But I think that when we tie some other scriptures together, we have some reason to think that this is actually a Christophany. And the other scriptures are statements about how God will go before Israel himself and how this seems like to be that a fulfillment of that specifically. Um, what I will do is, uh, for more on this, I will link below a great study, not because not of me, right? But because the subject is awesome. Christophanies in the Old Testament. I have a video on that. I will link it down below for you guys to check out after this video is over um, or right now, whatever you want. Or just type my name in the word Christoph, like Christ and then O-P-H-A-N-I-E-S, Christophanies, that's the plural, um, or just a Y for singular. So if you type that in, you'll, you'll get to the video. This is this is a study where I'm going to go through a bunch of scriptures, bring them all together. I think that this is a Christophany, and you can hear my full case for why I think that. All right, let's go to the next question. Number 14 Yogo Condor says, what happens to autistic people or mentally disabled people um, when they go to heaven? Um, so my theory, and it's a theory on this, is that, um, and it, okay, so it's based on scripture. Here, here's, the, here's the biblical grounding for it. In 1 Corinthians 15, it says that corruption will put on incorruption. Mortal will put on immortality. And it's talking specifically about the new bodies that we get. And the new body comes with a new brain. And the brain, it seems, is where a lot of this, these issues you're bringing up are seated problems there. It seems to me that um, while autism is like a big spectrum of things, so I don't, I can't speak for all of it, but let's say this. Anything along a spectrum of any kind that you could consider part of corruption, say schizophrenia, um, uh, mental retardation, and you could look at these things and go, this is the brain not functioning right. This is something wrong, that that will not be part of the new creation so that there will be a fixing that goes on there. So the corruption, this body, bodily corruption, including stuff that's in the brain, will put on incorruption so that the new body is perfect, has no problems. So that that's my understanding of it based on 1 Corinthians 15. Um, what happens to autistic people? And I, I've known autistic people who I didn't, it, it didn't seem like their autism was really much of a problem. Um, then there's other people who their autism was a big problem. So like that's why I say there's a spectrum and I don't really know where God's like, I'm going to fix this and not that, or this and not that. I know it'll be perfect. I know God will do the right and best thing. Um, but I do expect someone who suffered mental retardation to not have that problem in eternity. And um, that'll be another reason to rejoice. Help me. Jesus has a question. Hey, Pastor Mike. Hello. Hello. Um, how do I know if I actually have a saving faith? especially considering that I'm addicted to pornography and ha and I'm having uh, a hard time asking someone to help me stop. Um, thanks. Um, I'm going to say this and I get in trouble every time I say it. Well, I trouble. I, I get people who will push back on me pretty hard every time I say it and I'm okay with that. Like I'm not, I'm not the Pope. Um, <laughs> and if I was, you should push back on me real hard. Um, but but my, my understanding of it is this. And again, you're just getting my, this one guy sitting in his home office in Southern California, trying to give you 
his thoughts on these issues, right? Um, the Bible's king here, um, and we're all just the jokers. <laughs> that was that was a that was a kingly court analogy. Okay, all right, all right, moving forward. So, um, as I understand this issue, when a person is saved, it affects and impacts their life, and so while their obedience does not make them saved, it is a fruit of their salvation. So the, there's a phrase, not the root, but the fruit. Your your works, your obedience to God, it is not the root of the tree. It doesn't give life to the tree. It doesn't sustain the tree. So your works and your obedience to Jesus, they don't get you saved and they don't keep you saved. But the fruit is the result of the tree. If the tree is alive and healthy, it'll bear fruit. Now, if you walk up to like a grape bush and it has grapes on it, when you, especially for me, I'm not a farmer. When you see the fruit, you know, it's a grape plant because look, it's got grapes on it. What if there's no grapes? Does that mean it's not a grape plant? No, it doesn't mean that. Now, this is what a lot of people will think I, I'm saying here. And there's a misunderstanding there. Um, I'm not saying if you don't have fruit as a Christian, you're not a Christian. I'm saying if you don't have fruit, I can't tell that you're a Christian. Just like if I see the grape plant, and I don't know the leaves that well personally, right? So if I see a grape plant, for me, this analogy works, and there's no grapes on it, I don't know if it's a grape plant or some other kind of vine. When I look out at Christians and I see in their lives no fruit, and, and, and I mean no fruit, not that they have some sins they struggle with, but there's simply no fruit in their life. I look at them and I go, I have no reason to think you're a Christian. You might be, but I can't tell. So if someone in that situation was to ask me, hey, Mike, do you think I'm saved? And then I said, well, what kind of fruit is there like in your life that shows that you're a Christian? And they go, well, not really much of anything. I mean, I kind of like, I just have positive vibes for people. But other than that, like I'm pretty much just live the same way I would if I wasn't a Christian at all. Then I say, I don't know that you're saved. And they go, well, but I believe. And I said, I hear you saying you believe, but I don't see the fruit. So I'm not sure what kind of plant you are. Is it real? Because there's at least some people, can you all agree with me on this? Even those who think my theology is wrong here. There are some people on earth who think they're Christians, but aren't. Those people exist, right? They exist, right? Because Jesus said there are many who will say to me, Lord, Lord, yet, and he'll tell them, I never knew you. So those people do exist, like those exist. So how can I have a ministry that never acknowledges their existence or acts like they don't exist or tells everybody, no, if you say Jesus is Lord, He's your Lord. He he definitely knows you. Like that's not what scripture tells me. So when you ask this question, I'm aware that there's this category that I believe exists of people that are either fake Christians or maybe they're Christians and you just, I can never have confidence. Maybe, maybe they are. I don't know. Um, and you're like, but is that me though, Mike? Is that me? Am I in that category? And, and here I go, I don't know your life well enough. What I know is one major struggle you've got, pornography. I mean, I would ask you two things. One is, is there other fruit in your life that demonstrates the genuineness of your faith in Christ? Yet there is a real struggle here that you're, that's ongoing. In which case I would say, look, I'm being straight with you. Okay. This is the, this is like the doctor who tells you the bad news in a straight way. And it, and it is annoying, but you like him because he helps you and tells is he's honest with you and everybody else plays games straight. If you look at your life and you go, I have a lot of fruit, but I've got a struggle here. Then I think, yeah, probably Christian. If you look at your life and go, not really any fruit and major struggles in these areas, then I go, yeah, I'm worried. I'm really, really scared for you. What's the solution? If you're that, give your life to Jesus Christ. Actually repent. 
oh, but I still struggle. Yeah, you're going to keep struggling. But where's your attitude? Like, where's the get, go to church, read the word, pray, stop being a, a hateful, <laughs> mean individual, start putting on patience and kindness and love and respect and, and behaving in good ways and start living out the Christian life as a way of demonstrating the genuineness of your faith. Um, but ultimately it starts with just getting on your face before the Lord and confessing, Lord, look at me. I'm a mess. There's nothing in me that demonstrates your work in my life at all, but I'm not giving up. I'm, I'm going to redouble this, this distrust. I think I have in Jesus, but I'm going to, I'm going to come at you again, Lord, please help me meet me where I'm at. Help me with my sin issues. Do a work in me by your spirit. Have grace upon me every moment of every day. What I'm saying is desperately clinging to Jesus is the only answer to this dilemma. It's the only answer, and you need to do it for sure. Uh, and and that that's about as best as I think I can explain it. I mean, I hope that I hope it helps you out. I really do. I really do. The discouragement that has you thinking, "I'll just give up. I'll just give up. God doesn't want me. I'm, I, I've been struggling with this sin too much. I'm just going to quit." That is not the voice of the Lord. That is not the voice of wisdom. That is the voice of discouragement and death. It's the it's the guy who says, "Oh, I, I failed such and such in school. I'm just not going to go to school anymore. What's the point?" And it all just goes downhill from there. That voice of discouragement is not there. You should not, for a second, doubt the grace that Christ has for you, and the kindness and the love of God for you, and His willingness to receive you. Never for a second. You just need to doubt the seriousness of your own commitment to Him, and you need to redouble that down. If that is in fact in question, is it? I don't know. I don't know. Um, Christians will struggle. And they're not told that they're unsaved because they have sins that they ongoingly struggle with. But keep bringing that thing to him. Okay? Repent again. And tomorrow, repent again. And the next day, repent again. And keep repenting. And be as serious about it as you possibly can. And ask God to soften your heart and show you how bad that sin is. And show you how good his holiness and his love is. There's my advice for you. I hope it's good. Number 16, YouTubing Falls says, or YouTubing Falls actually says, YouTubing Falls says, is it against the Bible to have your congregation vote on whether or not to have women as elders? Um, not, not exactly. I mean, I don't see a biblical teaching that your congregation can't vote on stuff. Um, there's no, there's no teaching that they should vote on stuff, but there's, there's no teaching that they can't vote on stuff. It would be unbiblical for them to vote that women can be elders. <laughs> Like, I'm like, I'm like pouring gasoline on my life and setting it on fire right now um, by saying all this. So the unbiblical thing is to say that women can be elders. I'm very, very strongly confident of this. Whereas I wouldn't answer this question years ago because I just felt like I, I really wanted to study it carefully. I feel super intimidated making a statement like that to the world, knowing that it could impact people's lives. I take that deadly serious. Um, I'm highly accountable for the things that I teach. Um, but having studied the scripture, having looked at all the arguments, the egalitarian arguments especially, um, yeah, no, the Bible's really clear here. Women women aren't supposed to be elders. Men are. And there's reasons for this, and it's in God's purview, and people don't like it. And I understand they don't like it, and I would want to do everything I could to help them understand it and to take away the bias against such a view. But any vote in a congregation should go the way the Bible goes. They're voting on whether they'll obey scripture or not. Whether they realize it or not doesn't mean they're malicious. They probably read some egalitarian book that misled them. Um, they probably heard some egalitarian teaching that was not true. I'm still working on the First Timothy two video, where it's you know I do not I do, where it says in First Timothy two twelve I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man. That phrase um, and that whole section I'm still working on that video, but I'm I'm getting really close, you guys. 
I'm just building the graphics and I have to record the teaching, which will take several days. And then I'll, it's going to be really long. And then I'm going to upload it with timestamps and, and you guys can have the notes and everything. So I will back up everything I'm, I'm telling you here as soon as I possibly can. Um, all right, let's go to the next one. And Sim says, do you have the Holy Spirit if you haven't been baptized with him? I don't feel slash believe like I do. I can't hear his voice. Sim, I'm going to tell you a few things. We're running out of time, so I got to move quick. I 100% understand where you're coming from because I was in those same church environments as you. And they're not bad environments either. But every every church group, it's going to have some pros and some cons. Okay, And there are some cons here. Every Biblically speaking, every single Christian is indwelt with the Holy Spirit the moment they believe in Christ. Indwelt. That's a term I'm using carefully. That is the Holy Spirit is in you. Then there's other times in 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 book the book of Acts where you have to say someone like Peter who has received the Spirit. The Spirit is in him. Okay, he's indwelt by the Spirit. And later on, the Spirit comes upon him and empowers him to a specific thing he's doing in that moment. Uh, we see this in scripture where someone who's indwelt by the Spirit can yet have a another like empowerment moment. And the guy can do that as many times as he wants, as often as he wants, or never if he doesn't want. But it is not a salvation issue. Peter was saved before that moment when the Holy Spirit came upon him to empower him for some particular cause. He was already saved. Your salvation is not in question here. What you're saying is, I feel like I haven't had some sort of like powerful experience where I felt like some, some kind of, wow, the Holy Spirit is really just, wow, I feel God. And other people around you are having this and you feel that you're not and that maybe it says something negative about you nothing could be further from the truth. You're just in a church culture that has overemphasized that to the point where you think it's like necessary for either your salvation or necessary for you to have like a high quality Christian life. But that's not what scripture teaches. Not when we're carefully careful and we look at it in detail. Um, yeah, there's a lot more that can be said about that, but there's okay there's my perspective on it you want to think i'm wrong that's fine you can look at scripture make sure you're using it in context and um just because they're like hey did you receive the spirit when you were baptized and you can just go to that one verse and make a rule for everybody in your church where they have to feel like the holy spirit is super powerfully upon them they have to feel like they can hear god's voice which is something the scripture doesn't generally ex teach us to expect to hear god's voice and Probably a lot of people who think they are hearing God's voice. I don't know if they really are or if they're maybe just having a good idea, a biblical idea, a right idea, and they're assigning it to the Holy Spirit. Um, there are times in my life where I feel like God has really showed me something and it was from the Lord. I believe that's a thing that happens. I don't think it happens terribly often. Uh, at least not for me. Pretty rare. So maybe I'm just not spiritual. So you should go talk to someone more spiritual. <laughs> um, number 18. Abby Crown says, how do the ideas of the day of the Lord in the Old Testament and Jesus' second coming in the New Testament intersect? I've been studying it, but I like some opinions. So I did a project a long time ago when I was in the school of ministry. They were like, look up the phrase, the day of the Lord, and give it a definition. Sounds easy enough. Define the day of the Lord. The, the trick is you have to get your definition to work wherever you see the phrase, the day of the Lord. So in the Old Testament, you see a lot, a lot, a lot, right? The day of the Lord. It's talking about something that's happened already. It's talking about something that hasn't happened yet. 
It's talking about something that was like literally in a 24-hour period. It's talking about something that was stretched out over a long period of time. So I tried to come up with a definition of the day of the Lord that would work on all these different uses in the Old Testament. And I looked and looked and read. And I kept looking up passages and tried a different definition, different definition. Is it the thousand-year reign? Is the day of the Lord the tribulation? Is the day of the Lord a specific moment in prophetic history? And my conclusion was that the day of the Lord is a generic phrase that refers to any time in which God is actively doing something specific in in, I don't want to say in history because it could be a future thing, could be present, could be past, but he's actively doing something right at that moment. Um, oftentimes it's judgment related. Oftentimes it's judgment related. So that was my definition, something along those lines. Uh, when God is actively working in, in the world. That means that the day of the Lord wouldn't be a specific, you don't just look at the day of the Lord, the phrase in Jeremiah, and then you go, that's in, during the third year of the tribulation or something. That, no, that, you can't do that. <clears throat> the day of the Lord seems to be a very generic phrase that covers all sorts of activities from the past to the present to the future. It's like when God does stuff. <laughs> That's my perspective. Um, anonymous question here. What is the cure for hypocrisy? Hmm. I've stopped going to church because I feel rotten on the inside. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. And I feel like a fraud. I don't seem to love Jesus like others. My heart is cold, no emotion. <clears throat> I'm just going to throw several things out there, and I hope some of them help you. And I'm, I'm going to ask you this, anonymous friend. <laughs> um, please feel free to disregard anything I'm about to share with you that's like, nah, that doesn't really apply to me, Mike. Don't let it burden you. Don't let it bother you. Just set it aside. Be like, yeah, he's just sharing things that might help. Okay, so one of those things would be this. Um <clears throat> You feel like you're failing, so you stopped going to church. Um, that's like saying, I have so many cavities, I'm going to stop brushing my teeth. You're making the problem worse. You're still failing. You're just pretending you're not because you've given you've given up. But you're still actually failing. And so what you've done is you've somehow convinced yourself that by failing even more, you're failing less. But in reality, it's like, it's like the... Um, what animal is it that buries its head in the sand? The ostrich, right? They put their heads in the, in the dirt, or at least I've heard they do this. Um, this is what you've done, right? But you're still in danger. And so as your brother, I, I would say to you, hey, please, please realize that like what you're doing is you're not actually fixing anything. You're ju you just want to feel, man, I could be wrong here, but you want to feel better about what you call failing, you want to feel better about it. So you're hiding from it, but you're still doing it. You're just closing your eyes. That's, that's not good. Like that, that's no, that's not a good solution. Whatever, whatever other solution you got, like that's got to be the wrong solution. Like I got so many cavities, I'm going to quit brushing my teeth. I'm like, oh, this is going to not be good. This is going to make things worse. And you're going to reap what you sow here. It's going to, it's going to be ugly for you. So please, Go to church, like be in fellowship. Now, maybe at your church, it's possible that when you go there, you're, you're not aware of the incredible grace of Christ and the love that God has for you. And the, the fact that you, there are tons of people in the room with you who, like you, are clinging desperately to the grace of Jesus for, the, for that very day just to show up. And, they're, and they're, like, they're like the tax collector in Jesus's parable who beats his chest and goes, Lord, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy. Have mercy on me, a sinner. 
have mercy on me. And then Jesus tells the story. He goes, he goes, I accept that guy. Look, if that's you, God accepts you. You need to, but you got to come to him and you, and you, and you got to trust in Christ, but don't give up. Don't quit because that's just making it worse. None of your problems are going away. They're getting worse as you close your eyes to them. That's a bad, bad solution. So you stop going to church because you feel rotten on the inside and you feel like a fraud. I'm going to suggest brutal honesty instead. Find one person at your church. doesn't matter if they're in ministry. I mean, if they are, that's great. Nothing wrong with that. That's good. But they don't have to be. One person who you think, I'm just going to, I'm going to trust that person with some of my stuff. And you tell them what's going on. And you do what you just did with me. And you let them know, can I share some stuff with you and have it just stay between us? But I really need to talk to someone. I've got some really hard stuff to talk about. I'd encourage you to go talk to them because... Isn't that better than the alternative of just abandoning? Like, don't give up. I'm trying to get you to not give up. I'm trying to get you to get up and fight again and fight some more and not quit. It's the same thing I would tell myself. For as long as you bury your head in the sand, the problems will just get worse and you will have years more of of things going wrong. Please don't do that. I wish I was a better motivational speaker for you (laughs) to encourage you here. So I get it. You feel rotten on the inside. For that, we cling to the grace of Christ. I get it that you you're, you think I won't go to church, but that's that's why you got to go. This is why you need to go. Because guess what? In your life of of bad things that you've done, church is like this bright beacon that says, "Hey, wake up!" And all of a sudden, you're there in worship and the time of study and the time around Christians, and you're like, "Oh my goodness, I'm suddenly aware my life is not okay. Oh, I'm failing." And if you take away the light that's shining on your life, you're just in the darkness all week, and you don't even have that. You say, I don't seem to love Jesus like others. You don't know how much people love Jesus anyways. You probably shouldn't. It's better to not compare if you can help it. You say your heart is cold, no emotion. Um, Take that to the Lord. Lord, my heart's cold. I feel like I do not love you very much, but I want to. Will you please help me? Will you wake up my cold heart? Don't expect things to be perfect. Don't compare yourself to others like it's a competition. That kind of insecurity and stuff, it doesn't help. It doesn't help your spiritual growth and it doesn't help others. Because let's say that one day you get to be that guy that just loves Jesus so much. And then you can walk into church and you're like, I love Jesus so much. And what if people follow your same pattern of looking at you and thinking, I don't love Jesus as much as that guy. You would hate that, right? You'd be like, dude, no, you don't understand the journey it took to get me here. Like you don't look at me and get discouraged because you don't love Jesus as much as me. Like you should maybe... Let me pray for you or be inspired by that. Don't go down that road, man. You got to look, find these weird places your brain wants to take you that are, so I'll quit. Like, and the solution to the problem is, here's a problem, here's a problem, so I'll quit. Here's a problem, here's a problem, so I give up. And that's the wrong turn. You should say, so I'll recommit, so I'll double down, so I'll refocus. Um... Praying to God about these things is obviously good, and, and maybe you're already doing that. That's good. Keep keep doing that, please. Seeking someone to talk to, I think, is probably also good. But you say, like, what is the cure for hypocrisy? That's kind of the way that you've couched your question. Um, one of the things about hypocrisy, it's connected to that word for acting, like a, the an actor. The old word for hypocrite was like an actor, someone who fakes. So honesty is one of the cures. Um being open. So you take away all the fakeness and you're, and you're open about who you really are. So if you've been going to church and sort of playing a a make-believe game where you try to present yourself like you're something you're not, you don't need to run and tell the whole audience, Hey, everybody, I've got all these problems. 
but find somebody, find some people to open up with and, and be honest about your struggles and know that if they're like me, <laughs> then they know their sinner is clinging to the grace of Christ too. And they'll, they'll just be honored that you even open up to them and talk to them. And then they'll just do everything they can to try to provide you with some clarity and help you get that mask off. Question 20, this is the last question. Super unknown says, is it possible to love the Bible so much that it can be a form of an idol? This is a really, uh, really hard to say. No, it's not. No, you can't. No, you can't love the Bible so much it becomes an idol. I have never seen or met anybody who turned the Bible into an idol. Never. I don't know that it's ever happened. Biblically speaking, an idol is something you worship that you think represents a deity. Now, okay, sure. Granted, there's got to be in the, in the wide world of life, there's got to be somebody out there who literally worships their Bible right? And bows down for, and turns it into an idol, an actual idol, something they worship. That's totally wacky and wrong. But I've never seen any statement in scripture that leads me to think that this is caused by loving God's word too much. Like read Psalm 119 and ask yourself, does this guy love the Bible too much? Is it possible that in Psalm 119, it's idolatry in the Bible about the Bible? Hmm. Right. L let's just, let's read a little bit of, of, Psalm 119. Um, oh, look at these things. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. Your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes and will not forget your word. Deal bountifully with your servant that I may live and keep your word. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. I'm a sojourner on the earth. Hide not your commandments from me. My soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. This is, there's a, there's a crowd out there who likes to say, well, you're just like a legalist. And they use this word for everything, right? The word legalist, it's like the word, you use the word for anything. Anybody who does anything they don't like religiously, you're a legalist um, or a Pharisee. And you guys, you know, I worship, I worship a living God, not a, not a book. They would respond to the author of Psalm 119 if he was, my soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. Like they would totally look at this and think this person was off their rocker, legalist, Pharisee, was totally overly emphasized on the Bible. Like I believe in the living God. You're worshiping a book. Okay. Um, what I'm saying is this. Actual idolatry of the Bible must be an exceedingly rare thing. I'm not really worried about it for the most part. People who don't love the word of God enough totally worried about that. That's a serious problem in the church right now around the world. That's a big issue. The neglect of the scriptures, the not longing for what God has given us in his word and the lack of appreciation for his word, the lack of the teaching of his word and the, the general not loving of the Bible is a major problem in the world today. And so, yeah, um, love the Bible more. Is it possible to love the Bible so much it can be a form of an idol? Um, 
not really, <laughs> not pragmatically. Uh, no, I don't think that's something we should be worried about. The opposite is more likely true. All right, y'all, that, that's been the stream. Let me uh, close this out in prayer. Father, we thank you for your holy, holy word. We long for it and we want to love it more. We pray that you would instill in our hearts a greater love for the word of God. It's, it's just crazy to think that we could love you and not love the things you say. We pray that we would love the things you say, that we would more deeply appreciate the scriptures and that we'd be an example to a future generation on what it means to trust in and know and love the word of God. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks guys for joining on a weird Tuesday stream. Um, for the Honestly, for the near future, I don't know what my streaming schedule looks like because in my own personal life, I'm just spending a lot of time over with a family member and don't know what every day's don't know what's going on leaving as soon as i clock off the stream we're going back so i don't really know what's going on right now that's kind of messing up it's not messing things up it, it, it's a it's an honor it's a privilege to get to do to do this but it means that i can't be reliable <laughs> so i don't know what the future holds appreciate your prayers for my family and i um i'm done yeah take care <laughs>